Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. There are some pastors who believe in extemporaneous preaching. And uh, you may not know of any, but they're out there. And uh, then again, maybe you do know of some. Uh, in other words, no sermon preparation do they feel is, is needed. In fact, they feel it's unspiritual. They can't imagine why anybody would spend time studying the Bible, why a pastor would spend time. They just sort of feel like uh, uh, there's a host of other things to do, and they can trust the Lord to, to give them the words to preach. They would feel like sermon preparation is stifling, it's unspiritual, and they would feel it's a waste of time. Why prepare for 25 hours when just before you get into the pulpit, the Spirit of God will give it to you? In fact, I heard about one minister who boasted uh, that all the time he needed to prepare his Sunday sermon was the few minutes it took him to walk from his parsonage to the church next door. Now, you know what the elders of that church did? They bought him a new parsonage five miles away. No one wants sermons that you just get, you know, walking from your home right next door to the church. So they just bought him a house and, you know, spend some more time. story to be sure, but it highlights something for all of us. We all need to be studying God's Word, whether we are a pastor or not. As we are going to find out in today's program, Christ's promise of giving His followers the words to speak was not referring to the church. What exactly did Jesus mean? We will get into that in just a little bit. Welcome. You are tuned in to Verse by Verse, a radio program that teaches the Word of God in a very systematic and God-honoring way. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff. He is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our series is titled Birth Pains for the Kingdom. I find that when I am studying and learning more about God's Word, it is very enjoyable. So I hope you also have enjoyed the teaching that we have been receiving here on Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve has done his stretching and warm-ups. He's limber and ready to go. So let's dive into today's program. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said that after I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance what I've taught you. He'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your mind what I have, what I have said. So I think it means that when you stand before when these believers stand before authorities, uh, the Spirit of God will bring appropriate scriptures to their minds because absolutely our authority is the Word of God. What you and I have to say, our, our testimonies are interesting and important, but they don't carry biblical weight. The Word of God does. Uh, Christians on trial for their faith can depend upon the Lord to give them the words to say to their accusers. They don't have to fret. They don't have to be anxious. You don't either have to do that now, even though you're not in the tribulation. Don't worry about these things. 
Some of us worry, well, what am I going to say if I get in this situation? Spirit of God will give you wisdom. Just walk with the Lord. Just walk with him. Walk in the Spirit. Walk with the Lord, and uh, you shouldn't have any problems. Now, let me stop here for a moment and, and reemphasize what I said a few minutes ago about pastors using this verse to justify lack of, of sermon preparation. There are some pastors who believe in extemporaneous preaching. And uh, you may not know of any, but they're out there. And uh, then again, maybe you do know of some. Uh, in other words, no sermon preparation do they feel is, is needed. In fact, they feel it's unspiritual. They can't imagine why anybody would spend time studying the Bible, why a pastor would spend time. They just sort of feel like uh, uh, there's a host of other things to do, and they can trust the Lord to, to give them the words to preach. They would feel like sermon preparation is stifling, it's unspiritual, and they would feel it's a waste of time. Why prepare for 25 hours when just before you get into the pulpit, the Spirit of God will give it to you? In fact, I heard about one minister who boasted uh, that all the time he needed to prepare his Sunday sermon was the few minutes it took him to walk from his parsonage to the church next door. Now, you know what the elders of that church did? They bought him a new parsonage five miles away. That's right. No one wants sermons that you just get, you know, walking from your home right next door to the church. So they just bought him a house and, you know, spend some more time. Listen, Christ's promise of the Spirit giving believers words to, to speak refer not to sermons in church. Is it talking about the church? Absolutely not. Church isn't even in here. It's not talking about the church. It's talking about law courts, defense before, before Gentile and Jewish authorities. It has nothing to do with Sunday sermons. That's why you want to take the Bible in, in its context. We can all be encouraged by the fact that when we are in tough situations, we don't have to worry about how to witness for Christ. If you're walking, as I said before, walking with the Lord, walking in the Spirit, God will give us wisdom to say the right things. He'll bring the Scriptures to your mind. That's what this is talking about. And in context, tribulation. Now, how deep will hatred for believers run during the tribulation period? Verse 12. And brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. I know we read this and we say, how could this ever be? How, how could it be that family members will turn upon one another? What about natural affection? Well, Paul said something very interesting in 1 Timothy 3. He said, in the end times, men will not be naturally uh, loving. They'll be consumed with self. In fact, in, in Matthew 24, verse 12, which is not included in Mark, there's an interesting statement. Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. It'll be a time of, of love growing cold. It'll be a time that won't consist of natural affection. It will not be a time like, like today. Family members will turn upon others because they'll be obsessed with self and there'll be unrestrained sin. The church will not be here to restrain sin. And I'm not talking about legislating it just by its very presence of suppressing sin. People will do whatever they want, and whatever they want really concerns themselves. That's where, that's where human nature is at. Anything else is just, just restraint. So not only will there be official persecution, but even family members will turn upon one another, and their arrest will actually lead to death. I'll have more to say about this as we go further. But it won't stop there. Notice verse 13. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. Which means society in general is going to hate Christians in the tribulation. Why? 
He says, on accounts of my name. In other words, because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. For a believer in the tribulation, just because he wants to be loyal to Jesus Christ, he will suffer persecution. Not because he's doing anything that's, that's harmful, because he'll be an ally of Jesus Christ, loyal to him. And that's the same reason that you and I suffer today. We don't experience the persecution, at least we have not, that believers will in the tribulation, but we experience persecution. And down through church history, believers have experienced horrendous persecution. Death and torture, and, and it's still going on in, in other countries. Not here. It might someday, but not, not yet. And the only difference with us today and the believers in the tribulation is that it will be a crime to be a Christian then. It'll be a crime. It'll be a criminal act to be a Christian. That's why they'll be arrested. Now, let me show you where I get that from. Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. Speaking of the Antichrist, that coming world ruler, and they worship the dragon, meaning they worship Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast. The beast is another name for the Antichrist. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So the world in general is going to worship the Antichrist. They're going to worship him. And there was given to him, that is the Antichrist, a mouth, that is Satan gave him a mouth. Satan is inspiring this man, he's controlling him, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 42 months is three and a half years. That's the halfway point of the tribulation. From that point on, he will be persecuting believers. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So he rules the world. He makes war with believers. But watch this. Verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. In other words, those who are not believers and those who will never be believers, everybody else worships him. The world worships him. And some do not. Those who are believers, tribulation saints say, no, we're not going to worship you. And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but have not yet trusted Christ, probably a lot of Jewish people, and a lot of Gentiles also, who will come to Christ during the tribulation, say, no, we're not going to worship you. And you know, it will cost them their lives. Verse 15 speaks of that. They will be killed if they do not. Everybody worships him except those it says in verse 15, there was given to him to give breath to, there's some image that he sets up in the temple, and the image of the beast might even speak, somehow it speaks, and causes many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So if you don't worship the Antichrist in the tribulation period, it will be a crime. And the punishment for that crime will be death. They'll be killed. That's where Mark chapter 13 fits. They'll be arrested. They'll be killed. To not worship him will result in death. Now, when put it together. When you realize how adverse conditions will be and the hatred for believers so intense that even family members will betray one another, then verse 13 makes a lot of sense. The end of verse 13. You'll be hated by all on account of my name, but watch. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Under such hostilities and such pressures, 
It'll be a real temptation for somebody to simply renounce Christ and walk away and say, I don't need this. I don't want this. I didn't ask for this kind of trouble and just walk away. But they won't do this. Not a true believer. He'll endure to the end. And I take it that he does not mean the end of the tribulation because he may not make it to the end of the tribulation. The, uh, the term the end here, the, the definite article is not in the original Greek language. It simply means he endures to end. He endures to a finality. Does not mean the end of the tribulation. The person who endures right up to whatever, the end of his life, the end of, of it all, uh, he will, that person is going to remain faithful to Christ regardless of the persecution and this loyal Christian at the end, perhaps the end of his life, will experience the completion of his salvation, that glorification. He'll be saved. Does not mean that he's going to be saved from sin, that, he, that, that he's going to be, become a Christian. He's already a Christian. That's why he's enduring. There are different aspects of salvation. The moment you trust Christ, you enter into that salvation, but there is a completion of that salvation. And that's what he's talking about here, glorification. To, to die will be that you go to be with the Lord. Be absent from this body it is to be with the Lord. So it's salvation in the future sense. He who endures to the end and does not renounce Christ and does not reject the truth will complete his salvation. Now this verse does not teach that salvation from sin comes to those who persevere. It's not talking about that at all. But those who truly trust in Jesus Christ will persevere. You don't need to be in the tribulation period to persevere. All believers evidence that they know Christ by persevering. When you hear about somebody who says, oh, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore, they were never a Christian to begin with. True Christians struggle in their faith at times. All of us struggle at times. And uh, some, like, like Peter, may be really up and down in our lives and, and might even deny the Lord at times. But no true believer walks away from the faith and rejects it and says, I don't believe this at all. No, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's what Jesus said. Perseverance is the evidence of genuine faith. Because when God begins to do a work in you, Jesus said in Philippians, I mean, Paul said in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will what? Perform it or perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It is God who is at work in us. It's not that I hang on and I persevere and boy, I'm not going to let go of the Lord. It's that the Lord's not going to let go of me. That's what it is. It's really the perseverance of Jesus Christ with us. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you continue in my word, then what? You truly are my disciples. Continuation is one of the proofs of being a believer. It's not the only proof, but it's one of the proofs. So in the, in the tribulation, period, they're going to have intense hostility. And uh, the Lord is simply saying that the one who endures, who can, who can handle this, is demonstrating that he is one of mine. And when he dies, or when his life comes to an end, or when he's killed, he's going to have the completion of his salvation. The same thing for us. I wonder, as you read this, if your impression is the same as, as mine. When I read this, I thought, how deep is my allegiance to Jesus Christ? I mean, some people have, have fits over the most petty things. In, in light of eternity, in light of what our brethren in the tribulation period are going to endure, everything seems so petty. It really does. How deep is your allegiance to the Lord? Would you renounce him if your life was threatened? Only you can answer that. Where would you stand if it was a crime to believe in Christ? Would you dare to come out to church? Would you dare to be identified with believers? 
How deep is your Christianity? How strong is your allegiance to Jesus Christ? Is it a cultural thing? For many people it is. It's just, you know, they were raised in the church. They wouldn't think of doing anything other than go to church on Sunday morning. But how deep is your allegiance to Christ if it could cost you your life? That's really the issue that I see here as we apply it to ourselves. I, th- I think we ought to just renounce pettiness and the shallowness of, of unbiblical Christianity and just walk with the Lord in a sustained, deep allegiance to Him. It ought to be a commitment that says, Lord, I don't care what they do to me, I love you, and you'll give me grace to die, you'll give me grace to live. So Christians are going to experience an unparalleled time of persecution, but the event that triggers this off, the event that, that triggers this severe hatred is referred to in verse 14. And here's where it gets extremely interesting. And Well, the whole thing is interesting, but here's where it really comes together and where you have to put on your thinking caps. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, and Jesus says parenthetically, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Jesus referred to an event he called the abomination of desolation. To most of us, that means absolutely nothing. But to his Jewish disciples, he didn't need to explain what he was referring to. They understood. Because actually, the fuller presentation of this, which which Matthew says, is that this is the abomination of desolation which was spoken by Daniel the prophet. Daniel spoke of this, the abomination of desolation. These Jewish believers understood The book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation. And Daniel predicted, in Daniel chapter 9, he predicted a coming figure who would do something so horrible to desecrate God's temple that this abomination would cause the Jewish people to actually abandon the temple. They're going to get out. They'll they'll leave it. That's what it means. The abomination that really causes desolation. That's, that's the thought here. There is something coming that is so abominable to God and so abominable to the Jewish people that they will abandon the temple, they'll make it desolate. That's a pretty heavy thing when you think of the love of, of the nation of, uh, of, of Israel for, temp, for the temple and its history of loving the temple. Now, throughout Israel's history, the temple of God in Jerusalem has had abominable defilements, many of them. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed the temple. That would be an abomination of desolation. It's not the, the one that Daniel's referring to, but that would be an abomination that causes desolation. In the years 171 through 165 B.C., just a, really a few years before the New Testament era, there was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a uh, Syrian leader, though he was Greek. He was the leader of Syria who defiled the rebuilt temple. After Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, the Jewish people, some years later, rebuilt it. It wasn't as glorious as the first one. When they saw it, many of them wept when they saw the temple because they realized it wasn't as great as the first one. Antiochus Epiphanes came along, and he did an abomination that caused desolation. He put an image of the Greek mythological god Zeus in the temple and not only that he did the worst thing that anyone could ever do to the temple up to that point he sacrificed a pig on the altar now if you know anything about the Jewish people well you know that that is the most unkosher thing you could do literally it is ceremonially the most unclean animal a pig and Antiochus Epiphanes knew that and so he sacrificed a pig on the altar in fact many pigs on the altar image of Zeus the Jewish people 
abandoned the temple. In fact, later they revolted, and uh, that's where you get the Maccabean period, and you get the holiday known as Hanukkah, which means the Feast of Rededication. They took back the temple, and they rededicated it to the Lord. That was an abomination of desolation. Rome performed an abomination against the temple when they destroyed the second temple in 70 AD. So there have been two temples, and, they've, and it's been destroyed. It hasn't been rebuilt. But there is another abomination coming that will be the worst one yet, and that's what Jesus was referring to. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. This is the worst one yet, Daniel chapter 9. In fact, Daniel calls it the, the wing of abomination, which is the height the wing meaning the, the height, the pinnacle of abomination. Let me read verse 27, and you'll say, what in the world is that talking about? And that's why we're here to explain it. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, this verse is referring to a coming figure who will cause an abomination of desolation. This coming figure is the beast of Revelation 13. He is the Antichrist. Daniel spoke of him. John spoke of him. Jesus spoke of him. Revelation speaks of him. The Antichrist. He will make, according to this verse, he will make a firm covenant, some kind of a treaty with the many. Now, that means the Jewish people. That's who Daniel is talking about. That's the context. The many of the Jewish people, apparently some will oppose it, but the majority will, will embrace it. There will be some type of a treaty made, and it says for one week. Now, I know that you and I, when we hear the term week, we think of seven days. That's not what this means. There is not some treaty coming in which it will be for seven days. The term week literally in the Hebrew is seven. In other words, it is a unit of seven Years. It, it's sort of like the way we say dozen. When I say dozen, you'd say dozen what? You know, uh, a dozen days, a dozen weeks, a dozen years. That's the same thing, this, this word, seven. The context has to determine seven what? Seven days, seven months, seven years, seven weeks. In the context of Daniel chapter 9, it has to mean seven years. Even though I, every time I say week, you think of, of years, okay? Seven years. And also, it's the only thing that makes sense. There can't be, uh, with all the other scriptures, there can't be a one seven-day period of a covenant. It has to be seven years. In fact, this is why we know that the tribulation period will be for seven years. I told you a few weeks ago that hang in with me and we'll, we'll explain someday why we know it's going to be seven years. This is how we know. Period of seven years years. Now the Antichrist will agree to some type of, of treaty with Israel, probably a peace treaty, probably. And he gets his foot in the Middle East in, in, and Israel apparently gets the protection that she needs. Now Antichrist also is going to head up a Western European confederation. Maybe it's the common market, maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's the European community, I, I don't know. But it's the revived Roman Empire, he will be the head of it. So when he makes a treaty, it isn't just one man making a treaty, big deal, one man. But he will represent Western Europe. He will represent Western Europe. So Western Europe will agree to protect Israel, apparently. And so Antichrist 
gets his, his foot in the door in the Middle East, that's what he wants, and Israel gets what she wants, protection. She is surrounded by hostile neighbors, and she'll do just about anything to get protection. But according to verse 27, in the middle of this week, meaning three and a half years into it, three and a half years into the seven-year period, he breaks this treaty and he forces Israel to cease from offering sacrifices in the temple. It says, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. Why does he do this? Because he determines that something else will be worshipped in the temple rather than Jehovah. Ah, yes, that very elusive peace in the Middle East. Many have tried to arrange peace in the Middle East, but none have succeeded. This treaty won't succeed either because the Antichrist will break the treaty. He not only breaks the treaty, but he attacks the worship system of the Jews. You know, it's fascinating to me to think that the Jewish people will once again be involved in a sacrificial system, which makes me believe that there will be a temple in Jerusalem once again. Now, today's verse by verse was very enlightening, and I hope you have been blessed as much as I have. Our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, would like to extend an invitation to you. If you are ever in the Clearwater, Florida area on a Sunday, you would be welcome to worship at the Lakeside Community Chapel. If you would like more information, please surf over to lakesidechapel.com where you can find all sorts of details about Lakeside Community Chapel. I hope you're able to join us next time for Verse by Verse. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.